If you are with us this morning, uh, we are starting a new series, and the series is entitled Questions. As we look at this, uh, we want to answer the questions that are around in life in regards to Scripture. Uh, you may be here, and you have settled these questions long ago, but you may be a follower of Christ, and you may be uh, a little... Uh, it's been so long ago, you've been kind of... Well, I'm not sure how to answer these questions. Or you may be here, and you're what's known as a skeptic. And a skeptic's not a bad word. Um, a skeptic is a person inclined to question or doubt all accepted opinions. In fact, I'd rather have someone who questions and, and seeks to understand than someone who blindly follows, because much of the world is full of people who blindly follow and don't understand or don't take the time to consider what's, what's there. And so as I work through these series for the month of October, I'm, we're going to deal with different subjects. Uh, God, uh, Jesus, was he a myth? Was he, is he really the Son of God? We'll deal with Scripture. How can we even trust Scripture? And this morning, though, I want to start where I think uh, a lot of our culture is and start with this idea of science versus faith. Science versus faith. Today, the theory of, edu- of evolution is about as much open to doubt as the theory that the earth goes around the sun, Richard Dawkins. Again, Dawkins. It's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Richard Dawkins. And it's interesting, since Darwin's book on the origin of species... Uh, by means of natural selection or preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Yes, that is the real title, which we would raise an eyebrow now at this. His speculations and theories have been held up by those who are scientists as the answer not only to what is, but the origins of what is. But it's also referenced as a philosophy, a way of understanding and thinking. But the ultimate end of the theory is that if all of life is random and have come about by random processes, and and we have mutated to the stage of evolution that is only the important and the strong who survive, so we have no pity on the rest who don't survive since they have no soul, there is no creator, and no purpose than to otherwise rid their traits of the gene pool. And that's the end of the theory of this. And what has happened over the last number of years is there's been a claim that science has put an end to God. There's now no more need for God because science has given us all the explanation. It's provincial, this idea of God. Science is now the new deity. But what is science? Is science a bad word? Absolutely not. It is simply the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation experiment. If you go to uh, NASA, spaceplane.nasa.gov, you see this. What is science? Observing the world, watching, listening, observing, recording. That sounds pretty good. I kind of like doing that. I have a natural curiosity. I want to know how things work. Not enough to fix them, but I want to know how things work. That would take too long. I want to understand it. And, and part of science is understanding what is and how things came to be and, and observing and recording of this. Not a bad thing. But there's a popular opinion. 
And he goes this way, science is based on observation and on evidence and the search for what is objective evidence to what is unknown. Okay, that's science and that's good. And, but however, on the flip side of that is uh, something that says, whereas faith is ancient teaching and it reaches an irrational conclusion uh, regardless of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So faith is ancient, faith is not studied or evidentiary, but that's a false dichotomy. That's something that, is, that has been, uh, been separated science and faith. And that's false because those two things are often found together and are compatible. Science and faith. In fact, um, one of the books I studied here, um, Mark Clark has written a book called Problem of God. And by the way, as you are, want to, under, to know and to understand... These are not all my thoughts. I've been quoting, and I will continue quoting, and there's many books. If you want a re- list of resources of books, I can give them to you. Mark Clark's book is great. Uh, obviously, all of the, uh, just about all of the, everything Ravi Zacharias does. There's others, um, Eclipse of Faith. There's different things that you look at this. But as Mark is writing, he quotes uh, a philosopher. He says, I do not regard true philosophical atheism as an intellectually valid or even cogent position. In fact, I see it as fundamentally irrational view of reality, which can be sustained only by a tragic absence of curiosity or fervently resolute will to believe the absurd, concluding that atheism must be regarded as a superstition. Well, that's, thems are fighting words, if you come from where I came from. So you understand this. And what has led to this false dichotomy? What is this? So because Richard Dawkins says faith is a mental illness. It's a great cop-out, an excuse to evade, to think, and evaluate evidence. Okay, Sam Harris agrees, saying, We have names for people who have many beliefs for which there is no rational justification. When their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, delusional, or psychotic. So there is that false dichotomy that says science is about reason, thinking, and evidence. And faith is just, or Christianity is just simply irrational. But when given a fair evaluation, Christianity is more rational, has a more rational explanation to our material and spiritual world. Mark Clark writes in his book, The Problem of God, he says this, this idea of the understanding of this false dichotomy when exposed to the light of true science and true Christianity fades away. So what is this? How did we get here as a culture? Well, I think we've been given a couple of myths. I'm going to pick out two myths that we've been given. First of all, the, the, the myth of church that is in opposition, or, or church versus science. There's a myth that, that all science is opposed to the church, and, and, and absolutely all the church is opposed to science. And that was a myth that, that came. And maybe you've heard tales of men being persecuted and burned at the stake by the church, and, and back in let's say medieval times, the Catholic Church because of scientific theories that would challenge God. However, if you start to dig into it, uh, historian David Lindbergh uh, says there is no warfare between science and the church. Dinesh D'Souza said, historians agree science versus religion story is a 19th century fabrication. Often those who were persecuted were not persecuted because because of their scientific ideas, but rather the heresies that said other things. The, the so-called flat earth conflict is simply part of a 19th century propaganda 
um, that Al, the Oxford professor Alistair McGrath concludes rightly that the idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by most major historians of science. One of the last remaining bastions of atheism which survives only at the popular level, namely the myth that atheistic fact-based science is at permanent war with a faith-based religion. Interesting enough, science flourished under Christianity. You start to, start to think about it. If you read your history, it didn't flourish under other worldviews or religious worldviews, animism. If you think, if you think uh, if you deify all of nature, if you think God is in the trees and the rocks and the water, then one cannot scientifically analyze those things. So animism did not help science flourish. Uh, Buddhism, the idea that the universe is all, and is, but it's only a, an illusion. So if the universe is an illusion, there's no point to investigating it. Your conclusions would be also an illusion. And then you have the polytheistic uh, religions. In fact, while some of the great philosophers were writing and the scientists were, were, were discovering, you had on the other side the polytheistic religions that would say, uh, well, the reason the water is moving because Poseidon is shaking the, the sea and that's why things are moving. So we discount that. We don't have to research to see what's happening because of that. Even Judaism and Islam, they were more particularly interested in a law and a Torah for the Judaism, uh, um, of the Koran for, for Islam. Um, more than the, the, the idea of science governing our national world, of what's happening there. And we fail to remember that um, the 12th century institution of the university came about in the Christian context. That our own major universities in America, Yale, Harvard, Dartmouth, all these were started to Christian institutions. Not only to, to teach Christianity, but also to teach the sciences, the arts, to have people learn and discover. So there's that myth that really Christianity has encouraged science, has encouraged the exploration. The second myth that's there is that only religions adhere to faith. Only religions adhere to faith. And so that only religions are, are trusting in something, Science, however, is not trusting anything. It's all about the facts. Um, Harvard University biologist uh, Richard Lewontin wrote an article that was published in the New York Review of Books in which he admitted that he and scientists with whom he works prefer a naturalistic, atheistic explanation for everything they study, which in itself is no surprise, but what he wrote next was really telling. He said the reason he prefers such explanation uh, for the things, he says, because he and the scientific community have, have a, a prior commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept material explanations of, of the phenomenal world. He goes on to say, it's because we start from there. We can't let the divine foot get into the door. They start with a premise, a, a faith premise. This is what we believe, and so this is how it must work out. And don't we all? We start with a faith premise and then we work back from this. But even scientists do the same. What he admits here is really staggering. What drives his science is not fact but philosophy. Neil deGrasse Tyson um, wrote a preface to a book. Jerry uh, Schloss uh, wrote a review of a book called Faith Versus Religion. 
uh, and that was written by, um, where was it here? Um, well, I had his name. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Anyway, you can look at it in the Washington Post. I'll put this here up there uh, as he writes the book. He says, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's quote, let me back up here, says, the good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe it. But then uh, Jeffrey Schloss writes this. He said in the review, but this is simply wrong. Facts are what are true, whether or not one believes in them. Science is impressively reliable, but a fallible means for ascertaining facts. Indeed, facts are true whether or not science itself believes it. It's not that we trust in science, we trust in facts. So you see here that science also has a faith position as practiced by mainstream. And so as you start to look at this and say, is it really faith versus science? Is it really this dichotomy? Well, the first myth we've kind of turned away is not. Christianity is open to science. Evidentiary proofs of what is going on in our world. We like to study and learn and grow from it. But the, also the second myth is wrong also that, that it's only a religion that places faith in something. Scientists also place faith in their philosophy or their prior commitment to an understanding or a philosophy. In fact, itself, science as the only answer to origins is a huge leap of faith. Science maintains that the laws of the universe are fixed. And only science can explain the foundational element of its existence until the Big Bang was introduced and the earth began, uh, the universe began to cool after the Big Bang and to, to flux. And, and in one day, all those laws were codified, the laws of nature. And they introduced all that governed those things by natural law with absolutely no outside involvement from anyone or anything. And the scientist has a, has a faith position here. Mark states, Clark states, uh, that many will say, the reason I reject Christianity is because I already believe in evolution. But they can't readily explain why they adopted such a framework. If you look at, at science, you look at, at the, um, the origins, there's a pretty huge gap in a couple of things. There's a problem above the Cambrian explosion. There's the problem of explaining how a simple eye comes together. There's the problem of at least 30 missing links not found in the record of fossils. Atheist uh, and Harvard paleontologist uh, Stephen Jay Gold admits that the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as a trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. So we have this. We understand if there's a problem, science also, if to say they understand origins, have to take a leap of faith. Uh, Terence McKenna uh, now passed away. No Christian he. In fact, he was very opposed to Christianity. Um, it could be by his... Uh, uh, he was a botanist, but he was in much drug use. Uh, but he, he said this, and quoted by, by a guy. He said, the modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle... And then we'll explain the rest. So give it to us and then we'll explain it. Explain everything is. And, and that modern science, that free miracle really is the, the Big Bang. But the Big Bang suspiciously sounds like 
a miraculous event, something that's a miracle. Lending to the inadvertent credence of the Genesis account, that concept of God creating earth, earth and heavens out of nothing. It's interesting, you, you think um, of, the, of what science has given us as the, the origins and how many in the billions of years we have been here, according to them, and the millions of years, and that earth was too hot and too turbulent for anything to live and to grow, and then it began to cool, and then it began with a simple protein. And that simple protein came into being. And uh, my, uh, the biochemist Michael Denton, in his book, Evolutionary a Theory in Crisis, poses the problem. says, is it really credible that, that the random processes could have constructed a reality, the smallest element of which, a functional protein or gene, is complex beyond our own creative capacities in rea- reality, which is very the antithesis of chance which excels in every sense produced by intelligence of man. Lee Strobel, the philosopher of, uh, interviewing Stephen Myers, a philosopher of science, says uh, basically that the chance of this happening, these proteins coming into being, the simplest of protein is, is what's well, the large number? It's 10 with 125 zeros after it. That's the, the, that would have to be the chance of that happening. And so it takes a lot of faith. Even Charles Darwin, when he wrote letters toward the middle to end of his life, he says, within me, within me, the hard doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which have been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. He had his doubts about his theory. So when one examines the evidence of science, or at least the theory of evolution, they can't answer, how did the universe get here out of nothing? How then did life originate? Who wrote the instructions, the DNA? Who wrote that information? And as always, information always emanates from intelligence. Who wrote that? How did it come into being? There are doubts. And so we all have a faith position predetermined by a worldview. How does one create a worldview? Because evidently there are some scientists who have a worldview that says, I will start with the philosophy that there is no God and explain. And on the other hand, there are scientists who start with the philosophy that there is a God, and so the natural process came from him. How do we cultivate our worldview that, give, that brings us to the point, our starting point of, of our understanding. And Ravi Zacharias has its, says it's very, very simple how we create a worldview. And we ask ourselves questions. A question about origin. How did I get here? How did I get here? We develop a worldview, secondly, by, by meaning. What is life all about? Or more refined, how is, what is my purpose here? starts to work into my worldview of how, how I answer these questions sets up my worldview and how I live out or evaluate things. Morality. What is right and wrong? Who is to say what is right and wrong? Are there absolute or is morality relative? I want my relatives to be moral. No. It's, is morality relative meaning I get to do what I want and someone else gets to do it because it's, after all, it's who survives? 
And then the last question we have to answer is destiny. What is the end? How does my life play out? What's after that? And how we answer these thoughts, these questions, determine how we live out a life and how what perspective we take towards science and Christianity. If I want no supreme being to whom I am accountable, then I will choose to believe that there is not a supreme being, that the origins came from random chance. If I want a supreme being with whom I desire relationship, then I will choose a worldview that includes the supreme being. But make no mistake, both positions are from a faith view. They're held in faith. But only one worldview chooses to admit that faith is required, that faith is needed. And I think where we trip up often in this discussion and we set science versus faith is that we fail to understand that observable science points to God. Up to now, I've not used any Scripture purposely because I want us to understand the prevailing thoughts and attitudes and, and, and reason and logic. I want you to ask yourself the questions. But I also want you to be informed about how God has revealed Himself, how God has revealed Himself through the world that we can, through science, evidence, and observation, see the bit of character of who God is. Psalm 19, 1-3. picture in the background is from the Hubble telescope. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The word telling is making a written record. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hand. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Ever looked up in the sky? Ever looked at the stars and said, did this just happen? Did it just come into being? The sunrise every morning, that is, was fortunately this morning cool. Happy fall, y'all. Did that just happen? Or was there some intelligence that set the earth just so far away from the sun that we can have cool mornings and warm mornings, but not so much that we either freeze or burn up? But the moon that revolves around our earth and setting in motion the tides, was that just happen chance or Psalm 8, we read this morning in our scripture, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, I love this because it's almost as if the psalmist says, you didn't need your whole hands. In fact, every other time this is, there's one other time that's it's, it's really appendage, one other time it's, it's translated toe, but everything else is like, a, this is your, your hands. He designed it just, I don't need all my strength, I just need to wave the finger, to speak, as Genesis tells us. The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained. The psalmist asks this question, what is man? That you take thought of him. The son of man, that you care for him. If a God is so great that could set the planet spinning all in their space, all in, in the galaxies around us in our universe, if that God is so great, how is it? that he deigns to interact with lowly me and you. 
how is it that this great God interacts with us? But as we look at Scripture and we look at our world, we look at our universe, we understand that God has reached out to us and revealed Himself, not only in Scripture, but He's revealed Himself also in the galaxies and universe around Him. It is a picture, a small picture of His power and of His greatness. And His love is evidence to us. Yet the Apostle Paul, who was once a skeptic, actually he persecuted and sat as they killed Christians, but was gloriously turned to Christ. He says in Romans, in his letter to the Romans, he writes this, that, that, the, that God has clearly given himself and shown himself. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. It's not like you, like this morning I got up and I had to wipe my glasses again from the night of studying. I had smudges. But he says, the invisible traits that he has, his greatness, he has by his creation given us to see a glimpse of his power and of his might. How can the invisible be seen? All well, the same way that we know there's air. We don't see air, but we feel the air across us as it blows by. His power is seen to the beauty and the order of the world. A clear understanding that God Himself has revealed the goodness of His power and of His might. And He's given us that. He says, though being understood through what has been made, His creation, is that they are without excuse. What Paul is saying, astoundingly, is that we have all been given the opportunity to see the power and the orderliness and the glory of God. We wake up on a cool fall morning and we see the glory of God around us. We have no excuse not to see. Then why has there been a turn toward that seeing. And he answers that in verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. He's saying these who have turned away from God, they have known who God is. Within themselves, they see. And if they would just open their mind to what they see, they would, they would understand they knew God But they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks. There was no gratitude to God. But they became futile in their speculations. Useless speculations, basically their reasonings. And then in their foolish heart was darkened. The idea of darkened, yes, is a darkness of light, but it's incapable of perceiving. You know, you... So, I'm the last one to come to bed. And so I turn off the computer where I've been working. I'm coming back. And when the moon is full, I have no trouble getting to the bathroom to brush my teeth. That's always a good thing, kids. Um, but last night, it was dark somehow. And I'm, I'm seeing it. It came from a bright light of my computer. And I'm like, you know, I'm feeling the wall. Good thing I didn't wake up <clears throat> my wife. But I, I, I had that idea of, of darkness. And I couldn't perceive where the wall was. 
and I came perilously close to not only missing the wall or hitting the wall, but also hitting the door frame. That's never a good thing. Uh, that's why you stick your hands out. That's the idea that is that darkening, the lack of perception to understand is what Paul is saying. But because that we have seen and we've turned away, we humans have turned away, and we, we've gone after others' reasonings and speculations, we, we created another faith position that says, by random chance, all of this happens. Paul's saying this is what happens. The, the, the conclusion of this is our foolish heart is darkened and unable to perceive, and it continues from that. We humans deny what we know. We, become, we start to speculate. So if you're a skeptic here this morning, question, I know I'm not going to change your mind in one talk. Okay? I'm not that good. He's like, we know, Stacey. That's fine. I understand that, but instead I want you to open your mind that there, there's a whole lot of faith going on in your understanding and reasoning. You may have taken what very many learned people in their fields, you may have taken their, their words as face value and not really dug into it. And to see if they have a philosophical basis for coming to a conclusion rather than looking at the evidence and the evidence alone. So I want you to consider that and to investigate, investigate all the things, all the evidences, and to consider your firmly held faith that science is in opposition to the Christ of the Bible. Maybe just do a little investigating that, in fact, Christianity is often in agreement with observable science. Maybe to consider that you may have been sold a lie by people who have been willing to suppress the facts. You know, people who are willing to suppress the, the facts really, well, kind of like C.S. Lewis said. He said, uh, the humans have a long history a terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And don't we all, skeptic and believer alike, we try to find other things that will make us happy. We substitute. We substitute things for it. We are told that we must choose either rational science or irrational faith, but science versus faith is a false dichotomy. David Berlinski, an agnostic, wrote a book in response to Richard Dawkins' book. Richard Dawkins' book was called The God Delusions. Well, Berlinski's book was called The Devil's Delusion. He says that science cannot have an answer to, to morality. Science has been helpful in medicine and knowledge, but science will never answer the questions of love, meaning, and purpose. Zacharias follows up with the answer that science gives the random application of time plus morality, matter plus chance does not, does not deal with morality. And if it doesn't deal with morality, then the beheading of some poor soul in the, port, in the public square has no one to cry out against it. Because it's merely the survival of the fittest. But a Christian can look at science and see the laws of science and See a God who has set in motion these things, an omnipotent and an all-knowing God. 
A God that has revealed himself. A God that is not incompatible with science. And a God who is indeed the author of science. And this is the God whom we serve. This morning, if you're here, and hopefully this has been a help to all of us, I want you to, to come to the, from the position of understanding, of examining the evidence. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to know what you believe. You need to know the evidence for what you believe. If you're a skeptic, then consider. Open your mind to the possibilities that Christ is indeed true. psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? It comes to a point that we understand that God has revealed himself to us. He's loved us enough to come to earth, to die, to bring redemption. And he's answered every question. Let's bow for prayer. Before we pray, the questions that we have raised this morning as we consider this and are questions that sometimes take a while to answer, they take um, some time. And I want to put out the invitation, if you're struggling with these questions um, of science or maybe of, as we progress through this month of God of Jesus, of Scripture, feel free to reach out to me. Love to sit down, have coffee, and, and just talk. Won't be any recrimination. Just, just talk. Give me an opportunity. Most importantly from this series, this month of questions as we deal with them, is that you understand that God has revealed Himself and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that Jesus loved you enough that while the human race was rebelling against God and God rightly in justice, we all like justice because we want justice when it's for the other person. We don't want justice for us, usually. But because we had rebelled against God, as the Apostle Paul says, the wages of our sin is death. But he continues here, but the gift of eternal life. That gift is through Jesus Christ. So Jesus came to pay the debt of sin for us. He did so by dying on a cross. Take too long to go back and the imagery of the... He came as a Jew into the Jewish world. And that imagery of, of the sacrifice we yesterday... The Jewish world celebrated Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, of, of asking forgiveness. And Jesus, at once, on the cross, in his death, satisfied the atonement for you, if you but come and believe. And so we can argue about and discuss and, and, and look at evidence of science, but underlying all of this is that Christ has 
sacrificed himself for you. As you look through the evidence in the New Testament, you look at the evidence of historians like Josephus and others who wrote of a, of a risen Jesus. And you realize this is God. Jesus is God. So the invitation to you is to, to know him. Come and place your faith. We would love to, to take the time to, to walk you through that. If you're here today as a believer, say, I've done that all, Stacey. I've, I've, all of that is taken care of. But understand who your God is. Choir saying earlier, behold our God. A God who desires not only a relationship with you, and he has done that through Christ, but as I want you to be the one who tells others. This is our God. Gracious God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, in our time this morning, as we close, we pray for your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would reveal yourself to those who are searching. You have said that you will be found of those who seek you. So God, would you answer that prayer? By your grace and mercy, thank you for instructing us through your great power and love. Lord, may we who love you, who know you, live out a life, the life of Christ, of love and compassion, of caring, of ministry to others that Jesus led for us, that you may be glorified by our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.